please stand for the reading of the word. I'll give you a moment to turn to Matthew 4. So you go ready. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the, temp- and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. This is the word of the Lord. may be seated. Thanks. Good morning. Hope you're ready to geek out with me this morning. Uh, If you haven't been around, we are in a summer series where we are taking a long and loving look at Jesus Christ, who he is, uh, what he came to do. And we're doing that by looking at the Old Testament story, the big God story, and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that story. So each week, uh, we're going to take a particular Old Testament theme or prophecy or story and and trace that theme through and then see how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. And, And the goal of all of this is just to see Jesus in the fullness of who he is and all of the diversity and complexity of of who he is and what he's come to do. So my hope is by the end of the summer, you come away saying, I have a fuller picture of who Jesus is. I kind of knew who he was, but man, now I've got this like rich kaleidoscope of images and stories and each one gives me this different uh, window into who he is and what he's done. And so the goal is that we would worship him more, we would appreciate him more, we would uh, fall in love with him more and want to follow him more. So that's the, the goal. Uh, we started last week uh, with, went back to the garden, Adam and Eve, and how a serpent came and deceived them and sin entered the world and how God made this promise though to the woman that one of her offspring would come and conquer that ancient enemy, the serpent, Satan, ultimately. We looked at how Jesus is the offspring of the woman who has come and done battle with our great enemy. So today, we look at Jesus as the offspring of Abraham. And it'll take about 15 minutes to realize what what Abraham has to do with the temptation in the wilderness that you just heard read. Um, But I want to walk you through the story of Abraham and his descendants, and then we'll lead to this story of Jesus in the wilderness. So uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, right? There's a famous moment in history, the call of Abraham. He is just called Abram at the time. Genesis 12, 1. You have your phones, your Bibles, 
helpful to bring one of the two of those each Sunday. I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, Genesis 12. So just to catch up on the story um, from last week uh, with these great images that we'll be using all summer, right? So you have Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, right? And the serpent uh, gets them to distrust in God's goodness, You can't trust God. God withholds good things. God doesn't want good things for you. And they buy into the lie and they choose independence. We're going to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And they eat the fruit. And in that moment, sin enters their hearts. That's Genesis 3. And then Genesis 3 to Genesis 12, where we are, basically tells the story of the spread of sin into human society and into God's world, beginning with Adam and Eve. And then you see these image bearers now uh, full of hearts that are no longer trusting. Trusting God and obeying him, but instead going their own path, living in rebellion against God. And the question becomes, what is God going to do about this? What's going to be the solution to these image bearers that have run amok and are doing their own thing? And the answer is going to be Abraham. Abraham is God's solution to the problem of the spread of human brokenness throughout the world. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, let me read it to you. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All right? So God calls Abraham and Sarah... And he gives them a command, what, what, what you see in verse 1, which is the command is basically, leave, leave everything you've ever known. <laughs> leave your city, leave your people. I'm going to take you on this new adventure. It's this unknown, unknown wild adventure. That's the command. But there's a promise, and the, the, the important part of the promise for today's point is the promise of blessing. I will bless you, and I will bless all peoples through you. All right? I want to bless you guys, but I'm going to bless all peoples through you. So I'm going to keep coming back to this diagram. So you have all the peoples of the world, and we've seen that sin has spread into all the peoples. And so God makes a decision here. He's going to narrow his focus down on one person, on Abraham and his family. He's not going to deal with all the nations, all the peoples in the same way. He's going to focus in on one person, but through that narrowing of focus, ultimately the plan is through that person to then bring blessing to all the, all the people. So I love Garrett's question when he was up. He said, you know, what is God's heart for the nations? Do you know what God's heart is for the nations? And we, we learned through Abraham, God has a big heart for all peoples, but his strategy is going to be, I'm going to start with one. I picture like being a teacher, you know, with a bunch of, um, you know, third graders and the classroom is run amok and you're like, what am I going to do with this mess? It's like, well, I'm going to take one kid. I'm going to start with one and I'm going to do something special in that one. And, and then through, through that kid, I'm going to, you know, that, that'll permeate to the rest of the, the um, class. That, that's biblical. That's in here, that whole <laughs> analogy. Um, so that's the goal. He has his heart for all peoples, but his strategy is going to be to narrow in on one and to bless that one. So Abraham is blessed, we say, right? And he's blessed in order to be a blessing. And when it comes to Abraham being blessed, it is by God's sheer grace, right? There's nothing unique about Abraham and Sarah. There's nothing in the story that tells us they were more obedient or more superior morally or intellectual. There's nothing that's, that's you know, different about them. God, just out of his sheer freedom, 
and grace chooses to bless these people. It's not contingent on their being perfect or anything like that. So the blessing comes as this gift, an unconditional gift of God's grace. But as you read the story, what you learn is that the blessing to all the peoples will be conditioned on their obedience, on Abraham's obedience. And that makes sense. God's like, I'm taking you. Let me show you my ways, my values, my rules, my priorities. And in as much as you walk in those, you will reflect who I am. In as much as you do that, you will then be a blessing to the nations because you'll look different. You'll be distinct. And that's how you can bless the nations, and my blessing will spread from you to the nations. All right? So um, then we get, for the rest of Genesis, we get the story of Abraham's family, right? You've got Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then his uh, 12 sons. And what you learn about this family is uh, it's like any other family. God is faithful to them. He blesses them. And yet they're not anything, anything special. They are broken. They're dysfunctional. They're messy. And so a lot hinges on this family in terms of the nations. What will become of the nations? Well, it depends on how this family interacts and and what God is going to do through this family. So you're left at the end of Genesis wondering um, what's going to come of this. All right, so turn with me now to Exodus. This is the other place I'll take you before we get to Matthew. Turn to um, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. Exodus 2, 23. So what happens between Genesis and Exodus is is Abraham's descendants, his offspring, grow numerous. And uh, during a time of famine, right, in the story of Joseph, they end up in Egypt. They go down to Egypt and live there for several hundreds of years. Uh, And the good news is that in Egypt, they become numerous. They multiply. And God's promise to Abraham to give him many offspring is coming to fruition in Egypt. Uh, The bad news is um, they are living in, they've become enslaved in Egypt. So they are now in bondage uh, in Egypt. And and this provides God with this great opportunity to do something unique. So let me read to you. This is when they're in slavery. Now they've grown hundreds of thousands. Uh, Verse 23, it says this. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And here's the key verse. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked down on the Israelites and was concerned about them. All right, so God remembers his covenant. He didn't actually forget the covenant, you know, but like he's now going to act in line with this promise he made to Abraham. And so uh, God raises up a man, Moses, right? And through Moses, he says to Pharaoh this. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. And remember how Pharaoh was killing the firstborn sons of the Israelites? And God says, Israel, the nation, is my firstborn, my chosen people. Let my son go so that he may worship me. And you guys know the story. Pharaoh says no. But God, through these mighty acts, these ten mighty miracles in Egypt, these plagues, uh, rescues Israel, his firstborn son, from Egypt. And then they pass through the waters of the Red Sea right? And then they go out into the wilderness uh, where they live for 40 years. So there they are, uh, Abraham's descendants now rescued out in the wilderness. And there God enters into a covenant with them, just like he did with Abraham. And there's twofold nature to this covenant. On the one hand, he says, you are blessed, 
okay? He says, you will be my people and I will be your God, all right? Um, I'm entering into a special relationship with you just as I did with Abraham, so I'm doing with his offspring now. And you are blessed, why? In order to be a blessing. Exodus 19, he says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, now, what does a priest do? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. A, a priest basically is like a go-between between God and people. A priest can mediate the blessings of God to the people, and he can bring the concerns of the people to God. Bless you. Um, you're welcome. Um, and God is, God is saying, you as a nation will be like priests. You are going to mediate my blessing to the nations. All that say, I'm choosing you, I'm, uh, you're my people, but my, my heart is ultimately for the nations, and you will be the means through which I'm going to bless the nations. And so we see the same diagram. What was true for Abraham is going to be true for Israel. Right now it's all nations. He's narrowing in on uh, one group of people, the Israelites, and through that he wants to bless all the nations. When it comes to the blessing of Israel, it is absolutely by God's sheer grace. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt by his grace. They hadn't done anything. They hadn't obeyed him in any way. They weren't superior to any other nations. And God makes this very clear to Israel. Uh, let me read to you from Deuteronomy 7. He says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are actually the fewest of all peoples. And he adds other things. You weren't richer. You weren't morally superior. There's nothing special about you, in, a, in essence. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So when it comes to being blessed, it is by God's sheer grace and it's unconditional. You didn't deserve it. There's nothing special about you. God just chose you. He's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. But when it comes to being a blessing... That too, like Abraham, is contingent, is conditional in some way on them being obedient to God and walking in his ways and being distinct so that the nations are attracted to them. This is, again, what God says in Deuteronomy. He says, oh, this is Moses speaking. See, I have taught you decrees and laws so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of. And listen to this. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So inasmuch as you walk in my ways, you obey my laws, that's what will attract the nations to me. That's what will bring blessing to the nations. Do you see that? Yeah? Okay, so this, I think this quote says it really nicely. Israel's unique blessing was not a ticket to a cozy state of privileged favoritism. Rather, it laid upon the people a missionary task and a moral responsibility. This is so great that the Deblaus were here today. This is such good connections. Maybe God had something to do with this. Uh, they were to be a people committed to the way of Yahweh. That's God's name. Only in that way could their mission of being a blessing to the nations be fulfilled. Right? So they're blessed. They're given this missionary task. And then they are out there in the wilderness. And the, the question becomes, how will they do? How are they going to do in this task of walking in God's ways, of trusting him, obeying him, observing his laws? And what is at stake in that is not just Israel. What's at stake is the nations. Because in as much as they can do that, the nations will be blessed. So the question is, okay, so how's this going to go? We ought to feel there's a lot at stake in how they do. 
There's a universalness uh, that's at stake to what's going on here. So let's just uh, talk about uh, God's firstborn son and how they do in the wilderness. How do they do? Uh, the, the wilderness is, is described as a time of testing, uh, where God is testing in the sense of a test reveals who you are and what's, what's, you know, what's in your heart. And so we're going to discover what is in their hearts. Can they trust and obey God? And before we think about how they did, I just want to say um, this is the question for every human heart. Like what is in the human heart? Um, can we, will we trust and obey God or will we go our own way? And I just want to say this was a hard test. Hundreds of thousands of people out in the middle of nowhere in the desert is a tough test. All right, so test number one, uh, no food. There's no food. They get out of Egypt and there's no food and they're freaking out. Now they've just seen God do these amazing signs and wonders, lead them through the water of the Red Sea and you would hope that that would give them some trust in God, does it? Uh, well, no. Uh, if we had only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, how's that for faith? Um, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we want. All of a sudden, Egypt sounded a lot better than it did before. Uh, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. No, they don't trust. The minute they're called to trust and obey, they don't. Where's the food? We're freaking out. Let's go back to slavery in Egypt. That was better. Uh, test number two, uh, there's no water also. God provides manna, right? He gives them food. You would hope maybe that will help them trust God. Uh, next week or so, there's no water. Uh, the response is very similar. Give us water to drink. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Eh? Is this just one big mock you brought us out only to, to kill us? And it says specifically, they tested the Lord. You know, they're under test, but now they're testing God, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Meaning, God, prove, prove that you're here. Prove that you're a loving God. Do something awesome for us. We're, we're testing you. We're going to see if you're really the great God that you say we are. Not exactly, exactly the expression of, of trust that God was looking for in them. Uh, test number three. This will be the final test. No Moses. <laughs> Moses goes up to Mount Sinai for 40 days, right? And he's gone. And the people are like, where is he gone? And there's this cloud. Is he dead? What's, what, what's going to become of us? And they're anxious. They're afraid. And so they say to Aaron, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So just shortly into this new relationship with this God who has entered in the covenant with them, they're already worshiping other gods, which is breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. So you see throughout that, that this people is tested and... Um, God's firstborn son is unable to pass the test. They are slow to trust, slow to obey, slow to walk in the ways of God. And like I said, it's easy to pick on them, but I'm pretty sure if we were out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere, we probably would have made the exact same decisions. Okay? Our hearts would have moved in the same directions that their hearts moved. But the question becomes, well, if that's true of God's chosen people, if they cannot obey, if they can't walk in his ways, what's going to become of the nations? When you read the rest of the Old Testament, you see Israel ends up going just like every other nation. They don't, they're not superior. They, they kind of worship the nation's gods, and they are about as good as the other nations. And so the question becomes, how is the blessing of Abraham going to come through God's people if they cannot trust and obey him? All right, that's hopefully a good setup for Matthew chapter 4. So turn with me actually to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. You guys hanging in there? 
Yeah? Good. Okay. I shortened it for second service. I'm not geeking out quite as much second service. You got the light version, probably better version. All right, Matthew 1, 1. So we move to the New Testament. The question is, what is going to become of the blessing of Abraham to the nations in light of Israel's story, God's firstborn son? So Matthew begins the new covenant for us, the New Testament, um, with a genealogy of Jesus, which begins this way. Verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of who? Abraham, right? So Matthew is telling us, Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. God had promised offspring. He promised to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. And Matthew is alerting us, Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is offspring of, the, of Abraham. The question will be, can the blessing of Abraham come through him? Chapter 2 uh, gives us the birth account of Jesus. And in the birth account, Matthew tells us a story about the three wise men, right? The, the, the Magi. We actually don't know if there are three of them. Um, but they were the Magi, and they come. And King Herod is threatened by this new king that's been born. And so he does this horrible thing. Is he, he sends soldiers to Bethlehem, and he slaughters all the young boys that were around Jesus' age. Two years later, this horrible massacre of, of children die. And so... God warns Joseph, Jesus' father, in a dream to get out of there. So if you look at verse 14, it says, uh, so Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for, where did they go to? Egypt, uh, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And then Matthew adds, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay? Now, if you were to go back to uh, Hosea, which uses that, it's actually not a prophecy. He's not predicting anything. He's just saying, God is reminding Israel, I brought my son, Israel, out of Egypt. And Matthew is now pointing to that, say, ah, look, here is now Jesus, who is the son of God. And just like Israel, Jesus was also brought out of Egypt. Chapter 3. You go to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, which be begins with his baptism. So if you go to chapter 3, uh, verse 17, Jesus goes down to the Jordan River, right? John the Baptist is baptizing. Jesus goes into the waters of the Jordan and comes out, verse 17, and here's this wonderful thing. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So we see that Jesus comes out of the water and he's identified as God's own son. And immediately then, chapter 4, verse 1, our passage that Robert read, Jesus is immediately led from the waters of, of, of baptism into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. All right? So Jesus, right, God's son, he uh, comes out of Egypt, he passes through the waters, and then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Does that sound like any other story you've heard in the last 15 minutes? Yeah? Oh, yes, right? The story of Israel, who comes out of Egypt, passes through the waters, and goes into the wilderness for a period of 40, not days, but 40 years. And so you have Jesus, the Son of God, reliving the story of Israel, God's firstborn son. And he is doing that as Israel himself, as the true Israelite, God's true firstborn son. And just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness... For 40 years, Jesus goes out into the wilderness where he is tempted by, uh, by the devil for 40 days. Specifically, he goes there to be tempted, verse 1 says. 
It is a testing of him. Just like Israel was tested. And the test has the same function. It functions to find out, what is this guy made of? Can he pass the test? Will he trust God? Will he obey God? Will he follow in the ways of Yahweh? Or will he not? And I was thinking this week, I wish we could hear the story in real time. Uh, because, you know, we all know what's going to happen, right? We know Jesus is going to pass the test, right? But, but to hear it in real time and to realize this is a real test. Like Jesus is a human being. The things that Satan throws at him are real temptations for him. And I wish we could feel just the, the, the weight of the drama of like everything hinges on this young man being able to walk with God through this test. The nations and the blessings of the nations, and we are, most of us who are not Jews, are the nations. The blessing to the nations hinges on whether this young man, God's son, can pass the test or not. And I just wish we could actually feel that in real time. 2,000 years kind of, you know, dampers the drama of that moment. But let's just consider the test. We won't spend much, too much time, but I want, I want to think through this test in a way of just to, to watch the Son of God at work and watch his heart at work. And like I said, these are real tests for him, okay? These are very real temptations. So here he is now. He's out in the wilderness. He is Israel. <laughs> he is the true Israelite. Come. First test, exact same as Israel. No food, <laughs> right? I love... Um, Matthew's understated way, after fasting four days and four nights, he was hungry. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, he's very hungry. Uh, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you really are God's son, uh, we talked about this last week, meaning, gosh, if you're God's son, well, first off, what are you doing out in the wilderness? Like, what are you doing starving in the middle of nowhere? I mean, what kind of a father sends his son out into the wilderness to starve to death. That's not a very loving father. It doesn't sound like a father you can trust very much. You've got to be starving. You're the Messiah. You can turn these stones into bread. You deserve to turn these stones into bread. Why don't you just feed yourself? Right? That's the temptation. I promise you, after 40 days, that's a real temptation for Jesus. Jesus quotes, with all three of the temptations, he quotes scripture what you may not have known is in all three, he quotes specifically from Deuteronomy 6 to Deuteronomy 8. And in those chapters, Abraham is reminding the Israelites about their time in the wilderness. He's reminding them of what they've learned about themselves in the wilderness, what they've learned about who God is in the wilderness. It's very clear to me as I read this that Jesus has spent a lot of time meditating on those chapters, processing those, praying about those, and thinking about what they mean for him and for his own identity, his own vocation in the world. Jesus responds with these words. Uh, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's from Deuteronomy 8. And if I were to go back there, you, you would find there that God... Or, God is reminding them, what I've done, Israel, taking you through this time, I made you hunger, right? And then I gave you manna, which you'd never seen before. And I did that to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's not just bread that you need. Yes, you need bread, but you need my promises that come to you. In this case, the promise was, I will provide for you. 
And so what I did was I taught you dependence by removing food so that you'd have to depend on me and then teaching you trust by feeding you with bread that you never could have made for yourselves. That's the kind of, what it means for you to be my firstborn son is to trust me, to depend on me, to depend on my words of love and promise to you. Israel failed in that test. Jesus passes. He says, I'm going to trust in my father. And if my father says, I don't want you eating right now, I'm going to trust in his word that he's going to provide for me in his timing. He will protect me and provide. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to trust him. And he passes the test. He obeys the father. Uh, Temptation number two. Uh, The devil takes him, this is verse five, took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. I don't know, this may be some visionary experience that the devil gives Jesus. Uh, He says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes uh, from Psalm 91, which is this beautiful psalm about how God will protect and provide for his chosen people. And so Satan is going, hey, if you're the son of God, you know, you're out here in the wilderness, I would be wondering if God loves me or not. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's what I'd be wondering. Well, there's a way you can find out, okay? Jump. Right? God loves you. He's going to protect you. He's not going to let you get hurt. And then you'll know. You'll know he loves you. You'll know you can trust him. I wouldn't be able to trust his word. But do this. You'll know everybody will know that he loves you. You're his chosen one. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6. He says, uh, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, that's exactly what Israel did with God, right? They tested God. They said, God, are you around or not? Well, do some miraculous work with water. Show us that you love us. They tested God and Jesus says, no, I'm not gonna test God. What it means for me to be God's son is not, I'm not gonna put him to a test. I'm, I'm not gonna make him live by my agenda. He's not a genie that I can just tell him what to do and he has to do it. No, no, it, it works the other way around. God has an agenda. God has a plan for me and I'm here to follow his plan. But I'm gonna trust in the words he said at my baptism that he does love me. I am his son. Even when everything around my, me and my circumstances would call that into question, I'm gonna continue to trust his love and then he'll provide for me. I don't need to make him my little genie. I'm gonna trust him. He succeeds where Israel failed. Temptation number three, uh, Satan takes him, this is uh, verse eight, uh, takes him to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He says, I'll give all of this to you uh, if you'll bow down and worship me. And we have to know that the kingdoms of the world is something that Jesus really, really wants. (laughs) That is what he has come to be as the king of the kingdoms of the world. He has come to bring blessings to the world. So it is something that he wants. And Satan says, I know you want this. And he says, I can give it to you and I can give it to you cheap and easy. Your father wants to give it to you in a way that is horrible. He wants you to suffer, be obedient, serve, ultimately die, become a curse. That's how you're going to inherit in your father's way. I've got a way that's so much easier. One bow of the knee right now. Just a little bow. Worship me. It's yours right now. And Jesus says, quotes from Deuteronomy 6, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He says, Israel was in the wilderness. They worshiped other gods. They, got, they freaked out, and they went to these other gods. They worshiped other gods. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to worship my God, no matter what that means. If worshiping him means obedience, suffering, and death, so be it. That's what it means for me to be God's son. I want to trust him and obey him at all times. That's the test. 
And I want to suggest it was a brutal test. It was a very real test. If you look at the way the passage ends in verse 11, it says, the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. (laughs) Meaning he's exhausted. He is burned out. He is worn out from this test, but he's passed the test where Israel failed. This Israelite, this son of God, this son of Abraham has passed. He has trusted and obeyed God at every point. And the testing in the wilderness really is just a paradigm for his whole ministry because that's what he does throughout his whole ministry. He trusts and obeys God at every turn. And then just to complete this story, of course, he does that most fully right at the cross, at Calvary, where he trusts and obeys his God to the point of death. That's what Paul says. He became obedient to death. He becomes the perfectly obedient son. And because he's perfectly obedient his entire life, that makes him the perfect sacrifice for all the sins of the nations, of everybody, of you and me. He is an absolutely perfect sacrifice. And so it's through his perfect life and then his perfect sacrifice that the blessing of Abraham can finally come to the nations. Because through his sacrifice, God offers forgiveness to all and freedom and his Holy Spirit and eternal life. So that the blessing of Abraham might now come to the nations. So to round out the picture, you have all peoples, God chooses Israel, and then he narrows it down to one Israelite. He is the one faithful remnant. And then through Jesus, through his perfect obedience and his perfect sacrifice, God's blessing comes to all peoples. Amen? Okay, so here we are. We represent the nations. Most of us are not Israelites, right? Most of us represent European nations, but there's a little bit of diversity. But we represent the nations, and we are here experiencing the blessing of Abraham because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, because of his faithfulness. Here's how Paul says it in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. 326, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. No longer is it just Israel that's God's firstborn son. Now, people of all tribes and nations, we're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs of that promise, heirs according to the promise. Through faith in Jesus, we receive the blessing of Abraham. And I want to leave you with the word of these, the, the key word in these verses. It says, um, you are all sons of God through what? Faith. Through faith, right? I want to leave you with this idea of faith. It is by faith that we become the offspring of Abraham. Faith in Jesus Christ. Specifically what I want to say today, what biblical faith is, it is our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, That's how we receive the blessing. It's our faith in somebody else's faithfulness. That's what distinguishes Christianity from other religions. It's not faith in our our abilities, in our moral superiority, in our ability to self-improve and become the kinds of people that that God would say, wow, you, you really, you are great. You've earned it. You deserve it. No, no, no. Christianity is about, no, we can't. No one can do it. But we've put our faith in somebody else's faithfulness. 
I'm trusting in someone else's obedience that at every point in the story, he continued to trust. He, he was resolved to obey his father and trust him no matter what. And it's that resolve and that trust that he had, not that I have, that's what I'm banking on. That's, what, that's how I can stand before the God of the universe and experience his forgiveness and his freedom, his delight, his approval, his salvation, his Holy Spirit, his own presence that comes to be with me, his, his faithfulness as my companion. It's my trust in somebody else's faithfulness. That is the good news. Reformers called it an alien righteousness. It's not a righteousness we have in ourselves. It comes from outside, from somebody else, from the offspring of Abraham, the true firstborn of God, who has won a victory of obedience for us. And we get to experience the blessing by simply trusting in his obedience and faithfulness. So I encourage you this week, wherever you need to be reminded it is not about your ability to perform perfectly for God. That is not what God is looking for. It is simply you trusting in what somebody else has done and trusting that that is enough, that that is all that you need to experience the blessings of God.